All right, it looks like we are live. I started a couple minutes early tonight to get some of the uh, announcements and things out of the way before people started popping on. My name is Ashley Williams. I own Legacy Farms Coffee in Cerro Bueno, Honduras. In the floor here is Stray Cat. That uh, Not a stray cat. It's one of our many generations of cats on the farm that protect our coffee from the dreaded mouse, which, point of fact, uh, mice don't really bother the coffee, but they bother us. Uh, anyway, he's decided to take in a liking to me and uh, loves hanging out with me on the back porch. So any of the cables that I don't have secure, she is chasing them and has already drugged the microphone off once. Haven't named her yet. Uh, just going to call her Kitty for right now. But anyway, Ashley Williams, Legacy Farms Coffee in uh, uh, Kansas. We're known as Legacy Farms Coffee Roastery. Here in Honduras, it's just plain old Legacy Farms Coffee. We also have Legacy Farms Missions, which we call LF Missions. It's a nonprofit that you guys can donate to. I'm here in Honduras for, this is my last day, so I always like to do a a bigger podcast of the end of the trip because it's always a sad night for me. I'll go in, wash and dry, fold clothes, and sort of close the house down. In the background, you can see there's a storm coming. So it looks like the counter just started over. So I'm going to say it again. Ashley Williams, Legacy Farms Coffee in Cerro Bueno, Honduras. We're also LF Missions or Legacy Farms Missions. And we have Legacy Farms Coffee Roastery in Mound Ridge, Kansas. You can find us on LegacyFarmsCoffee.com. This is the last night in Honduras. I've been here working on the new footing and foundation for what will be a classroom slash um, be sort of a barrack style apartment for when people come from the States to visit the farm or to come and do a mission group uh, or bring a mission group. We have another apartment already. We changed the beds up to sort of configure to whatever the group is. They all have hot showers. They're tiny, tiny showers and bathrooms, but they work. And uh, it's a great experience here. Both of them go right onto a trail that leads into the farm. So you can come and spend a week doing his work and helping the least of these. And it's always exciting when we have groups come. Uh, the other exciting news is next Saturday and Sunday, I am in Warrenville, Illinois, at a thing called Coffee Con. It is a huge coffee convention for the people who like to drink coffee. Uh, Chemex, Hario, uh, some of the brew companies are going to be there. It's all about the finished product. And so it's going to be coffee enthusiasts. Enthusiast? Uh, <laughs> and so uh, we're going to be giving out a thousand samples of our coffee. So I'll start roasting Sunday night or Monday morning. I'm going to roast 290 pounds of coffee, and then we're going to package that up into sample size bags. So if you come, you get a punch card, and you'll get five samples from some of the different roasters. Also, I've been asked to speak in a little forum that they're going to have on Saturday and Sunday, and it will be um, sustainable farming is the main topic. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to set up and record the event each time. Uh, and I'm hoping that Kevin Sennett, He's written a couple coffee books. Uh, if you look him up, it's Coffee Con. He puts this on every year and has done so for quite a while. So we're hoping to have him on a live podcast or at the very least a recorded podcast that we'll be pushing out uh, the 18th or 19th of October. 
And then again, we'll be back here in about a month. Eli and I, I think, will both be here and we will be doing uh, getting ready for a mission trip. We're going to be laying blocks. Eli has actually never laid blocks before. Uh, I've laid some, but just uh, I end up being the guy that runs around and the gopher guy. So Eli is going to be with the group laying blocks. So he and I are going to lay blocks for a day or two before everything starts. I have the comments turned on. I think I can have up to 10 people on screen. So anybody that wants to get on screen tonight uh, and ask questions, the I usually start the show out by talking about the questions that people have asked this week. Most of the questions have been about the pictures I've been posting on the project and some of the things I've done just here around the house. I had some questions about the bananas I have hanging on the porch. Before I come, I always contact the Hideo and he puts me two bundles on. One bundle is yellow and ripe when I get here. And the second bundle started ripening about yesterday. So I started eating them this morning. So he puts, has me about 50 pounds of bananas and I eat bananas like crazy when I'm here. I make smoothies and just eat bananas and, because the bananas are always here and they're free. Uh, today, I actually forgot where I put my lunch. I made lunch and no idea where it is. So I haven't had lunch. So we are, uh, we've done some housekeeping tonight. The main question, uh, I guess some people had seen an article on something about bean to cup. And so we're going to be discussing bean to cup and all that entails. Uh, we're going to start out with the workers all the way to the coffee in your cup. Now I'm going to introduce David Bynum. He's been on with us a time or two. Well, welcome David. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? You in Honduras? I can't hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me now? I've got your mic turned on on my side. Hold on a second. Hold can on. you look on your screen and see if you're... I'm going to mute you and then unmute you and see if that makes any difference. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you give me like a thumbs up if you can hear me? Okay. Well, I don't know. Uh, do you see a place on your, uh, whoop, went out, came back on. Can you see a place on yours that's got a mic or maybe try turning your volume up? Cause I still can't hear you. Let me go into my settings. Can you hear me now? Oh, it's got a place where I can ban you from the studio. <laughs> <laughs> can you hear me now? No, I still can't hear you. Uh, I've got your mic unmuted. Can you try just, uh, are you on your phone or computer? Can you try turning your volume up? It's either F3 or maybe it might be a volume setting. Or maybe try going out, coming back in again. No, it shows that you're, I don't have you turned off on my side. He went out, came back in again. Uh, David is a home roaster. I think he does friends and family. Uh, there, hopefully there'll be a couple other guys on. I'm going to send them a quick message. Got my cables all on the computer. I'll try to send him a message to help him get his volume turned on.
All right, I'm going to pop them back in again. Let's see what happens. Can you hear me now? Set. Nope. <laughs> Do you know sign language? <laughs> I don't know. I can I can see you clear as day. Just your volume is not coming through for some reason. Hold on. Well, the only thing I know to do is that I, my wife taught me what the F3 setting was to turn my volume up. Are you on a computer? Or are you on your telephone? Now, you know, I don't know. I'm looking at everything. No, I don't have any more settings on here. Well, I introduced you as someone who does home roasting and for like friends and family, things like that. Any more? Can you hear me? It says your mic is working. It says it's working on my side too. Let me, uh, let me see if I can unplug all of my junk and see if that helps. Can you yep. hear me now? I can hear you. Oh, all right. Well, there must be something <laughs> broken on my side. Well, let me take off all this junk and let's see if we can do that. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. So it must, must be something wrong with my stuff. Yeah, I can, I can, cause I can definitely hear you. Well, too much technology. Too much. Exactly. Let me get this bucket. I wish you could see my little setup I got here. Just got everything propped up on big old plastic boxes there. All right, we'll, we'll go low tech tonight. That works good. You can hear me now. Yeah, I can hear you fine now, brother. Uh, uh, Jose cool. Jose from Third Day Seguin Coffee sent me, uh, when I first started doing the podcast, sent me a little tiny uh, uh, setup where it plugs into the mic. He sent me a, a microphone and a headset. But... Uh, it's just not working tonight for some reason. I need to. And go I thought it. it was the battery because it worked last. It worked last night, so I, I thought it was just the battery. I put in a new battery, but I think it, we're going to blame it on that that setup. The setup, yeah. I want to go visit him in Seguin. How, how you're just a couple hours from there? Yeah, about about three hours. In fact, actually, next week I'm going to be going to uh, Bandera. Um, for a night and uh, might try to figure out a way to go meet him. Well, he is, uh, he's a great guy. Uh, I talked to him today a couple times. Uh, he just bought an old ambulance. And so yeah. uh, he, might be, he might rope you into doing some wiring or something on there. Uh, but uh, uh, I wish I could get up there. If at all possible, I want to get up there and help him help him work on it for a day or something at least. But yeah. he's a, he's a great guy. One of those guys that'll just bend over backwards. Uh, probably gets run over a lot cause he does, he helps too many people and he's yeah. running in different directions all the time, but he has always been there for me cause I'm one of the lowest tech guys you're ever going to meet. So yeah. he spent a lot of time with me in Honduras and him in the States trying to help me figure out the podcast stuff and, uh, I wouldn't be doing it now if it weren't for him. He's uh, he's just a super great guy. You might have to I think, a picture of your setup for the podcast. 
so I can do my own. <laughs> well, it's it's been it's been hard for me. I struggle, but I finally uh, I th I think I finally got most of it. I still have trouble finding some of my videos and stuff like that. But uh, right now we're streaming live to my two different Facebook pages and to YouTube. Uh, next week we're hoping to add in Instagram. But now it's uh, the audio automatically goes to Podbean, uh, Amazon Podcast, and some places like that, and so that's where we're that's where we're getting a lot of people that are viewing the the podcast. Oh, cool! But uh, I usually start the show out by trying to answer some questions and things, and I've had a couple questions the last couple weeks, and then somebody did a, a like a three minute YouTube thing a couple days ago about uh, how hard it is for me to get the my bean to your cup or something like that. And so I don't know if it's sort of a sarcastic view or whatever. I didn't watch the whole thing. Right. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole lot to getting the bean to your cup, you know, and some of it goes through you and I in the roastery and then shipping out. But there's, there's so much involved in it. And that's what we were, we're going to sort of go over tonight. But I met with another another farmer today and his biggest concern right now. I've been here about seven days and there's been 50 buses that have driven by full of illegal immigrants headed to the United States. I know. I heard you talk about that the other night. And uh, it's, my guy, Pedro, was there. And of course, he said, you know, I don't understand the language. He said, but they were wearing towels. Yeah. You know, and uh, and not trying to be racist or anything. He was just giving it to me in his simplest understanding. Yeah. He said but they were speaking a language, you know, and they were wearing towels and they had on like sheets. Yeah. And so and so I have no idea. You know, that could be any of a number of countries, any number of countries. Yeah. But uh, that was his you know, only explanation. And uh, but they're just they're just coming through like crazy. And yeah. then I talked to a farmer today that's in the southern portion of Honduras that's by the Nicaraguan border yeah. and they're coming through there. And he said that he's got a coffee farm also. He said that there were so many of his workers that have been permanent workers that are leaving and going to the States that he's thinking about selling this coffee farm. Oh, wow. And he said right now, because it's so bad in Nicaragua, there's people crossing the border to come into Honduras looking for work. Wow. And, and I am opposed to illegal immigration. We, yeah. as far as the United States goes, we have one of the best, <laughs> you see the cat in the background. We have one of the best immigration policies. We, we let in so many people legally every year. And yeah. I think most countries need to have an influx of, you know, but you can't, there's only so much, but also, these countries, it's it's going to hurt us this year. We're looking at how the crops so far look to be better than they were last year. And I have no idea how we're going to pick them. I literally am. I'm paying on the project right now double the, uh, what a normal day's pay is because I needed 12 to 15 guys to work. And we could only find uh, seven. Wow. That wanted to work for double pay. Yeah. And uh, so I don't know what we're going to do when it comes time to pick the coffee, because there's no option to do it automated. No. And I think, too, it's probably going to drive, it could potentially drive the cost of coffee up. 
if it starts dying in the field, yeah. Yeah, it's going to drive the coffee prices. I mean, coffee prices are already up to you know, a certain degree. Well, you know, that's something I've never checked on a lot uh, because it's one of those things that it is what it is. Sure, absolutely. And, and I, uh, I made a promise to my guys not to jump up and down a lot on prices. Uh, we've gone up some in the last year because it costs us a lot more to produce coffee than it does a lot of farms. Just because of our pay scale and the way we try to help the workers out, stuff like that. And I'm, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but uh, Bill, who's on here quite a bit, uh, yeah. I can buy coffee from one of my customers and sell to Bill a dollar cheaper than what I can sell Bill my coffee for. Yeah. And yeah. so, and and I and that's with me still making a little bit of a profit. I'm still, you know, marking it up like fifty cents. Sure. So I can. I can always buy coffee way cheaper than what I can grow it. Sure. One of my one of my vices are, are stroop waffles. I know. I heard you say that the other night. I uh, I, I got them on an airplane one time, and then I found out Amazon has them. Yeah. But now I'm getting them from my customer that yeah. I buy coffee from. Uh, Bill uses a Papua New Guinea, and uh, there's a couple other coffees and a decaf. And I also sell a decaf that I don't grow. And so okay. I buy those from one of my, my biggest customer. And he buys about 30 bags of coffee from me. And we used to trade, but then I quit trading simply because I can just sell him my coffee and then turn around and buy his coffee. Yeah. You know, I, he's paying me more than I, what I'm paying him. So it's, it's not business smart for me to, and he likes to keep his book straight. Yeah. So, uh, uh, he pays me, and then I pay him, and I, I save a dollar and a half a pound on my co- on the coffee I buy. Yeah, I can't uh, I can't decaffeinate coffee here. the The equipment costs too much. Too much money, yeah. And you could do the chemicals, but those chemicals are pretty harsh. Yeah, um, I watched a show on them yesterday, and I forget what else they make using that same chemical. But it's some. It's not what I'd want to drink. No. So we buy. Uh, what's called a Swiss water processed coffee. Yeah. But, uh, I, but yeah, it, I don't fool. I haven't fooled with decaf coffee. Um, I'm just not a big fan of it. I mean, I know a lot of people can't drink caffeinated, um, but yeah. I'm, just, I'm just not a big fan of decaf and it's harder. It's harder to roast apparently too. I've never tried. Well, I roast a lot from color and smell. Yeah, I do the same. And, and it smells funny and it looks like it's half roasted when you, when you start, when you start. Yeah. It's very discolored. And yeah. so, uh, it's, it's hard to roast. It almost has like a meat smell to it, like an yeah. uncooked meat about halfway through where yeah. you should be getting grass and hay smells, uh, when you're in your roasting process, I end up, it smells like meat. And then yeah. I just wait for it to start popping and cracking, and then I time it. Yeah. And then so I've come up. There's a Mexican decaf that I like pretty well, and then there's a, I think right now we have a an Indonesian decaf, and that's what we're selling right now. Right. But uh, if, weirdly enough, the Mexican decaf is a lot more expensive than the Indonesian decaf. Really? So, uh, yeah, I don't know why. I don't know but why. They, uh, but they both taste okay. 
you know, yeah. and, and I tell my customers, it's not my favorite coffee. You know, one of my best coffees, most popular coffees, the most expensive coffee I have is my natural. Yeah. And I don't particularly like to drink it. I'll drink it in an espresso shot. I enjoy it that way, but it's definitely not my daily drinker. Uh, right now, I'm drinking a, uh, a red honey process Marciessa is what I'm drinking right now. Well, I'm, I'm, I, I've got some of that still left from the order I got from you a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I like the red honey a lot. Uh, and the natural, I mean, the, lap, the natural Lumpura is good as well. Um, I, I like it. So, um, but in fact, I was looking, in fact, I'm looking on the website right now. Um, there was something, uh, let me see. Uh, you still got some honey processed perinea. The per, the per, uh, the perinema is, uh, yeah. I think I've got a honey on there and you I do. think there's a honey processed, uh, Ika too, maybe that's still on there. It's still on there. They, uh, the other night I started talking about running low on the, the Marciessa full natural. It was lot M two N. I think it, I've got some of that, but I don't think I've roasted it yet. Well, it had the uh, notes of mango and ripe fruit. I do. I, okay. I did roast it. Take that back. I did roast it and I've still got some left. Uh, and I'm going to roast some probably I'm about out. So I'm going to probably roast some of that this weekend. I think. And that well, I made a comment. Somebody said, well, I want to order some more. And I said, I'm running pretty low. And they said, well, I need to get a couple of pounds. I'll order tomorrow. Well, I, that night we had quite a few people online. And before the podcast was over, somebody had bought every bit of it out. Yeah. I've only, so, I've, I think I've got about a pound and a half left and that's about it. Well, somebody ordered either 30 or 35 pounds. And it's, so, uh, it's, it's so, worth it. The first year I have a crop, I don't do much natural because natural is, it really tends to uh, over ferment. And so you can really easily lose a lot. It takes three times more patio space than yeah. a regular coffee and twice the labor. So that yeah. first year I'll do a lot of natural for a new variety and then right. we cup it and see what it's all about. And this year it cupped, I think it was an 87 or an 88. Okay. And it was a really good coffee. So next year I'll try to do five or 600 pounds of it to make okay. sure I've got plenty. Yeah. Uh, next year we're sort of tapering down. We've got six main customers and then we got about 50 home roasters. Yeah. And so uh, next year we're going to, uh, hopefully we'll have a little more coffee than we had this year. So we're trying to boost uh, how much roasted we can sell. So we're trying to keep those same customers, not really look for a lot of new customers. But the customers I'm looking for are on the roasted side because yeah. that's what that's sort of what pays the bills. Pays the bills, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm looking. So yeah, the the one that was the mango, yeah, you're totally after that. And, um, but I'm, I think I'm going to put an order now. Hey, I did. I roasted the pea berry. I couldn't get. I couldn't get that. I couldn't get the first crack out of that. I couldn't hear it. Either I'm deaf because I have a cold. Or it just didn't, uh, I, I just couldn't you know, it's harder to hear. Yeah. I, uh, what happens a lot of times people roast it a little too fast. 
I put it in at a lower temperature and roast it a little bit slower, but I have to just watch. And when the beans start swelling up yeah, and I look for that crack um, and it generally works out pretty well. I don't think I've ever ruined a lot. I've had some that didn't taste for sure. didn't taste like I wanted, but the last batch I roasted was a full natural pea berry. And that was just an awful one to roast because the full natural has a thicker silver skin. And then the pea berry is a more dense bean. And so I always have more trouble with it. Um, and a lot of times I'll end up flavoring it. If, I, if it doesn't just turn out the way I like, right. I'll flavor it. And I hate to because that's the most expensive bean to produce because yeah. it's, it's selected twice. Once with our vibrating table, it goes out in the trash and then the women have to dig through the trash. Yeah. And so they can select 10 to 11 times more coffee in a day when they're doing regular beans than when they do the pea berries. Yeah. They'll drop to six or seven pounds a day per woman oh, wow. uh, when they're selecting the pea berry. But other, my other options to throw it out, you know, yeah. with, uh, with the bad beans. And we don't throw them out. We yeah. roast it really dark and sell it as what's called wakuko. So we yeah. roast it, grind it, and bag it for $1.35 a pound. Okay. And sell it here in country. Yeah. And then our workers uh, get it from us, and then they sell it for $2 in the street. Okay. It gives them a little bit of a second business. Second, yeah. But, uh, but I think you know most of the coffee process. You, uh, you definitely know the difference between washed and honey and yeah. all that. Just pea berry, there's a learning curve on it. There is. And I'm a couple years in and just now getting it. But I, uh, I often buy, uh, my customer will let me buy 20-pound uh, lots or 15-pound lots. So uh, every once in a while, I'll go in and buy 60 pounds. Yeah. And I'll buy 15 pounds of four different countries just to try to rot, roast something different. 15 is sort of my minimum size. Yeah, for your roaster. Yeah, so I'll I'll go in. I can roast twelve, but the probes don't read near as accurate as they, you know, as with fifteen. Yeah. So, so I'll go in with fifteen pounds. I normally roast either twenty-two pounds or twenty-five pounds. Okay. Is normally what I roast, but I've got an artisan roaster, and so it just when I got it, it it had no air control, and it yeah. just had one thermometer on it. And so I've changed that over to, uh, I put in two digital probes, two K-type probes and hooked it up uh, with fidget controller and hooked it up through the artisan roasting program. And so I don't save my profiles and all that, but basically it gives me instant, you know, temperature readout. Sure. You know, and that's about the only thing I use it for. And you can sort of see that curve, you know, yeah. versus when I'm just, I'm roasting off that analog dial type uh, thermometer. It's yeah. always 20 degrees behind what the digital one is. So yeah. I, I enjoy doing that. But now the other night we talked a lot about, uh, that's the first night I really got into politics. <laughs> and because uh, I had some customers that got on and, and they were doing some comments and there's two sets of comments. There's private chat. It was very interesting to see the private chat, what people didn't want online. Right. And, uh, but, you know, and, and some of the comments were, you know, people don't realize, you know, there, there's a lot of people with a big heart. They don't realize how much it's hurting the United States letting these people in. Right. But they also don't realize what the long term effects are going to be 
if uh, people start shutting down coffee farms because exactly. I live in coffee country. There's yeah. nobody within 50 miles of where I'm sitting that doesn't have something to do with coffee. Yeah. And I can tell you real quick, we're already looking into cardamom, uh, ginger, and bananas because those are three things that will grow well on my soil. Yeah. And to, and to next year start, and they're a quick crop. So yeah. I plant coffee. I wait three to four years for it to harvest. Sure. But if I'm planting those, uh, they'll grow. Cardamom takes two years, but the others grow, you know, in 10 months, I'll have a banana crop. Yeah. And I'm high on the pole. I mean, I'm the uh, highest farm on this mountain. Yeah. And the water comes right out of the side of the mountain. So I've got unlimited water. My, uh, I can fill my tanks up. I'm getting about 70 gallons a minute out the, that I diverted from the river. So I could, uh, and legally I can irrigate my, my farm. So if I wanted to start growing bananas, I would irrigate them, bag them and start trying to sell them to Dole or somebody like that. Chiquita is a big company here, but Dole is the biggest company. Yeah. So, I mean, we would definitely have to look into another crop and bananas are something we could grow and not get rid of the coffee. They would grow in the middle of the coffee. And we already have 2,500 coffee, uh, banana plants. Oh, Okay. But I have 85,000 coffee plants. Yeah. And so, and we're not, definitely not the biggest coffee farmer on the street. Well, bananas, but, bananas are not as labor intensive either, are they? They're not. You have to harvest them. Uh, you have to harvest them carefully because some of the, some of the varieties we have, the minimals grow about 30 feet tall. Yeah. And so it's, and it's in the middle of all my coffee plants. So it's, but it's, I should get a video of it. It's, it's, it's an art form to getting them down. I'm sure these guys will take a banana machete and he'll go as high as he can and slice that tree at a 45 degree angle. Mm-hmm. And then he swings that machete around and when, and that, that trunk slides and just hits the ground. And when it does, he slaps it again. And when that section hits the ground, he does an upswing and cuts the banana bundle loose. And another guy catches it in midair, bear hugs it. And the bananas weigh 55 pounds minimum. Wow. And so that way that tree doesn't just slam down and kill one of my coffee plants that I've been waiting on for four years. Four years, yeah. And those banana trunks are so full of water that we just leave them there. And within a year, they've just disintegrated into the ground. Wow. And so then we take our ripe bananas and we put them up by the compost pile and then they'll cut bananas for a few days and then they'll go up there and they'll slice all of those ripe bananas into little pieces. And then they'll put about a six inch layer uh, into the compost pile. And the compost pile is probably about 80 feet by 50 feet mm-hmm. uh, wide. And yeah. they just cover that with about six inches of ripe bananas. And then they'll cover that with uh, the husk off the coffee bean. Yeah. And then we put a layer about an inch of chicken poop over the top of that. And so, uh, and then after about 30 to 60 days, they'll start turning it. And then they'll turn it three times. And then as the lake starts drying all the moisture out, they'll start pulling off the top layers of dry compost, bagging it walking it down to the uh, organic bodega that we have and store it until the entire lake is done. And once the entire lake is doesn't have any more compost in it, then they dig down about two or three feet 
and take that just nutrient rich dirt, mm-hmm. haul it up the hill to where our nurseries are. Mm-hmm. We'll mix that half and half or it's according to what materials we have. If we have good, clean sand, mm-hmm. we'll, uh, we actually spray the sand to, uh, mm-hmm. with a, uh, uh, antifungal to get rid yeah. of any funguses that are in the sand. Right. And then we'll mix a regular dirt with sand and that nutrient rich dirt. And that's what we'll plant the seeds in for the next season's uh, plants. Yeah. And then we'll take uh, any kind of project we've got. We'll take that old dead dirt and throw that back into the lake for next year. When we start filling the lake with the cherries that come off the coffee. Okay. And then we'll do the same thing again, ripe bananas, caliandra leaf, chicken poop, the husk off the coffee plant, and then all that gets mixed in year after year. Uh, And then that gets, we put a shovel full on each plant that we can until we run out. Yeah. But it all sort of starts with uh, like from day one of the coffee farm, as far as being the cup, when we bought this farm, we started clearing the land. It hadn't mm-hmm. been used as a coffee farm for 12 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, there was maybe five or 600, maybe a thousand coffee plants that had been planted within the last 10 years. Everything else was wild and we just cut it down. Mm-hmm. So as soon as we got the coffee farm cleared, I hooked my truck and trailer up and I would go get 3000 plants and bring them back to the farm. And then my guys would go out and just a wave, they had ropes that had uh, paint marking on them that showed them how far apart to dig the plants. And then they, we spaced those ropes out to know how far apart to make the rows. And so we just started digging holes. And once we had about a thousand holes dug, the women started bringing the plants in. We would put in a little bit of compost and the women would plant the plants. So the guys are going down the hills, digging holes. The women are coming back and hauling plants in, planting plants. And from that point, you've got about a three-year waiting period until the, they're producing coffee. So it's everything about coffee is just super labor-intensive. So from the point that the uh, from the point that we get the plant in the ground, we have to cut the grass around the plant at least five times a year until the plant gets big enough because always the grass grows faster than the plant. Uh, now the mature plants, we still have to cut the grass twice a year. So we're, we're needing to fertilize here pretty soon. So we'll, the guys are going to start on Monday cutting the grass. Once the grass is cut, then they'll go in and start doing the fertilize. But when those plants are little for the first year, they all need one ounce about three to four times a year. When they're two years old, we'll do two ounces three times a year. Once they get to be three years old, we'll do three ounces three times a year. And then now we're doing two ounces. No, we're doing four ounces two times a year. And we're doing three organic sprayings uh, a year. So we organic spray, we fertilize, we organic spray, we fertilize, and then we'll organic spray about a month before harvest. And that just gives the plant a little bit of boost right before you know, it's stressful because you're pulling that cherry off the plant. So there's an open, you've just exposed a part of the plant to the environment. So the plant goes through quite a bit of stress while yeah. you're actually picking it. And you pick that plant five times. So yeah. it gets hit five times. So if you go by and pick a hundred pl- uh, cherries each time off the plant, 
and you're breaking limbs on the plant, you're knocking leaves off the plant. So it's a, it's a lot of stress the plant goes through during that picking. Sure. Once you've planted the plants and you have uh, some comments are popping up. Once you've planted the plant and uh, I'm not used to this second one. Uh, and you're, you're cutting it constantly throughout the next three to four years. You're fertilizing it constantly. You're spraying it for different things. We try not to ever use regular base insecticides or pesticides. We use uh, what's called Broca traps. The Broca is our main insect. So it's a three liter Pepsi bottle. Uh, I'm going to hold this up and everybody can pretend like it's a three liter Pepsi bottle. <laughs> and so I cut a four inch hole in the top section, a four inch hole in the bottom section, and I leave three inches on the bottom. And in that three inches, I put soapy water in it. Mm-hmm. I paint the bottle red because red attracts those bugs. I plant, I place the bottle, I hang it in a tree a foot above the plants because generally that's where they fly by and they're looking for the fruit on the plant. And then I take the screw, the cap off, and I put two inches of what would be the equivalent of vodka or gin. It's a sweet smelling liquor. Right. We poke some holes in that plastic bag on the top so the aroma can come out. And it is crazy how many bees will go into it. Not not bees so much, but just insects. Sure. But, uh, the insects, uh, each trap will have three to four hundred insects in it. Always get two or three honeybees in every trap. So it's wow. not the best for the honeybees. But uh, when you consider we have about 500 traps, you know, uh, it's probably not that much out of a hive yeah. of 50,000 honeybees. But sure. so that's what we use in lieu of um, insecticides. Right. This year we did do a, uh, a organic spraying. It's a combination of cinnamon, vanilla, and a couple other things. Yeah. And it just smells so sweet. The brokers don't like that smell. They do like the sweet smell of the liquor, but they don't like the smell of van- vanilla, jasmine, uh, and the other stuff. Yeah. So I don't understand it, but, uh, but there's no, uh, the mosquitoes and little blood sucking insects don't like it. The flies yeah. don't like the smell. So everything sort of leaves the farm for a little while. Huh. But in that point of that process of those two or three or four years, we're cleaning the plants, spraying them. We're, we're spending a lot of time you know, taking care of them. And we're talking about a group of 20 guys on average for the entire year, you know, that would be taking care of them. Considering yeah. some of the time there's a hundred guys out here and some of the time there's, there's always at least 12. We probably yeah. average 20 to 25 guys per week, you know, on the farm. Sure. And then you, you've got your infrastructure people that are here every day doing office work and taking care of tools and organizing things and, uh, but during that couple of years, until you get to the point where you're ready to pick some of the coffee, uh, one, the most stressful time of year for me is the picking season. It's also the funnest time of the year if everything works out well. But right. I get up at five o'clock in the morning and pull out of the farm in my big, it's called an NQR, a Zuzu. It's got mm-hmm. like a big giant box on the back of it. It's open on the top. Uh, a lot of people haul cattle in them. Yeah. I will go and pick up as many people as humanly possible. I've had over a hundred in it before. Good, but right. I drive uh, to a, a location this year called Pacael 
and I'll, I'll just drive to about five different stops along, along the route, blow the horn. And then when I get to the end, I pick up the, la- the group at the far end. And then on my way back, I pick up the other four or five groups. Right. It takes me an hour to go. I can, it's actually slower to go empty. Once I get loaded, I can drive a little bit faster. So it takes about an hour and 10 minutes, hour and 15 minutes to get there. It takes an hour to get back. Wow. And then if they unload and I've got a guy there that's handing out bags according to what lot, a lot they're picking in. And then uh, they'll pick until about two o'clock. And then I get in my Dodge truck and I'll make anywhere from three to five trips of anywhere from 3,500 to 4,500 pounds per trip. And I'll bring the, uh, the coffee cherry out and I drive it up to the way station. There'll be two way stations, two people manning the scales and four other people that are lifting bags, unloading bags. There'll be two guys that are manning. Uh, it's probably a 1500 gallon tank up on the top. Mm-hmm. And they're inspecting the bag before the coffee's put in to make sure there's not green coffee, to make sure there's not lemons, oranges, or rocks put in the bag to weigh them up. And, uh, and so then they dump it in there. Every once in a while, somebody sneaks in a bunch of stripped coffee, which is instead of picking the red coffee, they just strip it and throw that in the bottom of the bag to weigh it up. And uh, I've got some little flies buzzing around my face. And so if that happens and they dump it in the tank, somebody has to climb in the tank and uh, start picking out that green coffee because that'll screw up the entire batch of coffee. Yeah. Uh, And so from that point, once we get about 2000 pounds of coffee in the tank, there's an auger in the bottom. We start flooding it with, with river water that comes out of the, you know, the stream that comes out uh, or whatever you call it. uh, that comes out of the side of the hill. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then my son, Jonathan fires up the deep pulper. And according to whether we're going to process it honey or uh, washed, he'll divert it into either other tanks or send it straight to the patio. Right. Once enough water gets into that tank, there's a section about the size of one concrete block. Well, it's actually one concrete block that we pulled out of the tank, mm-hmm. and we put a chute on it. So any of the bad coffee will float and will go down that chute into another holding tank. Mm-hmm. Normally a coffee cherry has two beans in it. Right. Sometimes there's one, that's a pea berry. Sometimes yeah. there's three, that's a triplet. Yeah. And so normally there's two to three beans in there. If one of the beans is bad, one of the beans is good, it will still float. Sure. So that coffee is not a waste product. It has to go and be pulped in a different machine. And then once it's pulped, then it gets floated another day. Mm-hmm. But right now it's crunch time. We're trying to get everybody weighed so my son Jonathan can start up the depulper and start processing that coffee. Mm-hmm. Then there's guys down there, according to which of six patios it's going to, that are catching it in big giant two wheeled, you know, wheelbarrows. And then they're going to run it over to whatever patio it's assigned to. So if it's day one of picking, it goes to patio six and then day two goes to five, day three goes to four, day four goes to three, day five goes to two and day six goes to one. Mm -hmm. And so the patios, I assign the numbers backwards from what I should have. But uh, so it'll go to those patios. Um, And then from that point, you just start drying the coffee. So there's somebody out there, there's two or three guys hauling coffee. And then there'll be one or two guys that start spreading the coffee out. 
So that that process will go on. At that point, I jump in the truck. As soon as my Pacael group gets weighed in, we head out. When my Florida group gets weighed out, they jump into the truck with my wife uh, and she takes them home. And then uh, Alexander will bring his Toyota. And when his group, whether it's Mango or wherever, they head out. This year, we'll have some groups that are actually living on the farm. A group asked me today from Mango said, rather than, you know, can we live on the farm and my wife will start cooking for us. Uh, they're going to bring their, their two little kids out and they're going to live in the solar dryer where we dry coffee at. They'll live in there for, uh, from Monday through, uh, Saturday. And then we'll take them home on Saturday. They'll go home for the weekend and then we'll pick them up again Monday and they'll come out. And that's what they'd rather do than drive back and forth every day. Um, so once that coffee is on the patio, I'm in the truck for my long trip home. Um, when I get back, it's starting to get darker, but then the, then it'll start running. So one of the first things I'll do is start, uh, is start running, uh, uh, with Eli, we'll start going and making Lipton cup of soup, pouring up Pepsi, brewing coffee and keeping those guys bellies full and warm. So we'll serve a couple of things, a cup of soup at least twice during the night. And then when the meal shuts down around nine or 10 o'clock, uh, yeah, Andrew said he, he uh, Andrew might've been the guy that ordered, uh, uh, there was at least two orders. I think Andrew ordered 30 pounds and somebody else ordered us out. So when I get back on Monday, I'll, uh, I'll start digging through and I'm going to try to find uh, Andrew as much as I can. I've tried to call him a couple of times and hadn't been able to get a line out. So if you're still on there, Andrew, sorry about that, but we'll get you taken care of the best we can uh, and make you happy somehow. But once we get back and start processing that coffee, then uh, we'll uh, shut the meal down nine or 10 o'clock and then I'll jump in the truck and take all the workers home. And then the workers will start coming back on the farm about 5.30 that next morning. And so around 5.30 that next morning, we start that same process again. Hopefully we can have around 120 people picking every day. And uh, if we have 120 people picking, normally we'll get through picking in about eight to 10 days. And at that point, we wait about eight to 10 days before we start picking again. But in that eight to 10 days, we've rented a farm about 45 minutes from here that has a, that has a very unique microclimate. Uh, it's actually eight miles. It takes me 45 minutes to get there. And it's about 1,800 feet lower than where our farm is. But it stays warmer there than it does here. So we moved Pedro out to that farm. Are you trading anything in? And Pedro will stay on that farm for about two months and then he'll start drying coffee there. So he'll hire his own crew out on that farm and, uh, and they'll help him wrap the coffee. The coffee has to be sealed up every night. And then every morning he'll have a group come out and help him, uh, open it up and start drying it again. So he's raking that coffee all day during the day by himself. Most of the time, in the afternoon, three or four people come out and help them wrap it all up. So that's, you know, uh, but then uh, after about three days of him doing that, you know, every day I'm hauling coffee out there. 
And from between three to five days, I'll haul a load of coffee. I'll take all the excess from the patio and I'll take it out to that farm. So all day he's raking coffee. And after I drop workers off to start picking, I load the truck up and I haul a load of eight, 10, 12,000 pounds out to him. And then I'll pick up a load of dry a lot of days. A lot of days I'll just have to sit there and wait for the coffee to dry until it hits, you know, two o'clock. And at two o'clock, I have to head back whether the coffee's dry or not. So he'll have a tent set up. There's a house out there that he can live in while he's there. They have a tent set up where we can do coffee samples and he'll drop it in the sampler. And once that coffee's dry, they'll rake it up, bag it, write the information on there and take it into that tent so it can start cooling down. We do that basically six days a week, uh, seven days a week. We're on, uh, you know, we're working the coffee. We only pick six days a week. So once that coffee, uh, oh, Bill jumped in, says, hello, coffee lovers. Uh, once that coffee uh, is all picked and what we would say was the picking season is over, we have a, we still have a couple of weeks of drying the coffee. So everybody that was picking for us, a lot of them we try to get to work here. A lot of them will go ahead and leave and pick for another farm. Generally, we're one of the last farms to pick. But at that point, all the coffee is dry. When that coffee is dry to anywhere between 13% humidity to 12.5% humidity, it goes into the bodega. But it's pretty hot. So we have to stand the bags up, open them wide open, and they'll sit and cool for about three days. The first two days, you just run your hand in the bag to check and see how warm it is. The third day, we'll actually probe it and make sure it's within 10 degrees of whatever the temperature in the bodega is. And then we seal that bag up, tag it, weigh it, throw it on a pallet. And then that starts its 60 to 90 day aging process. Now in that process, in that time, after three to four weeks, we'll pull all the coffee out of the bodega. All the coffee that was on the top will go on the bottom when it goes back in. And then at some point, all the coffee, when we do it again, the coffee from the middle will go on the top. So we try to make sure you know, always the bottom is cooler than the top of the bodega. So we try to rotate the coffee pretty good. And that third time, we really spread the coffee out and we bring it in and we make sure this organized as perfectly as we can get it. Because the next time that coffee is moved is when Behidio starts to, to bring it into his the Triga house. Behidio runs the Triga house. So that's the house where we take the husk off of the coffee bean. At that exact same time, the, the women are coming in to the cupping lab, which is also the selecting house. And that's a 14 to 18 foot long table. And then it's a standard size like kitchen table. And so, and then there's four little bitty tables against the wall. And those are the training tables. So if we've got a new lady that's never selected before, we'll put her with her with one of the senior ladies to learn how to select. We have two stations where we do that. The other table, the big long table, will have 10 ladies there selecting. Sometimes we squeeze in 12 when we, when we can. And then the smaller table, I said it's like a kitchen table. Those are the inspectors. So each girl or lady has a numbered spot she sits in. There's a black tray and a white tray. 
So when she's selecting, her goal is to select out the defects. So while she's selecting those defects, she's putting the good stuff into one bucket, bad stuff into another. Well, the inspector, who is Anna, will come by and she'll take the white tray and scoop out some out of the good bucket, black tray, black bucket. Then she takes that over to the ladies on the inspection table and they're going to sort through and see how many bad beans they find in the good tray, how many good beans they find in the bad tray. If it's more than three, then her good bucket gets dumped back on the table again. And sometimes we have to reselect her bad bucket if it's too bad. And then that coffee gets reselected. What we're trying to do is go to what's called a zero defect selection. So we, every defect that we can find, we're going to pull it out. So we don't have a secondary coffee that we send in the States. It's either the grade A coffee or nothing. Uh, now, we do have some special orders sometimes. Mill City Coffee asked for a bag of defects one time with their order. So I brought them 150 pounds of defects. It had some screws, nails, rocks. It had a little bit of everything, chunks of concrete, little tiny chunks of concrete. Mostly it was insect damaged beans, black beans, green beans, things like that. Uh, damaged by the machine. Uh, they just wanted to uh, be able to show their roasting class how it was all, you know, what was picked out before they got to it. So if they're complaining, oh, I got a grain of corn in my coffee or I got a rock. Well, look at what actually came out of that, you know. So stop whining. Uh, so once that coffee starts uh, that process of being selected, uh, as soon as we have enough lots, then we'll start doing a pre-cupping. And that's where I'll just start pulling some lots uh, I'll roast 12 ounce samples. I have a Hucky 500. I, uh, 12 is sort of my, my preferred thing. The reason I roast larger lots is because I'm going to drink the coffee. I need coffee to drink, obviously. So I'm roasting those lots. We only pull out a couple ounces to cup. So my goal is always 12 in 10.3 to 10.4 out. And that's ounces. Every, and then we, uh, when we cup, we have a standard cupping bowl. It's 200 milliliters. Uh, that's after the coffee is already in there. So we do 12 grams of coffee and 200 milliliters of water. And that brings it right up to the brim. And so then we do the cupping process. Uh, and we'll cover that in a, a podcast. Once we get back to the States, we're going to do a live cupping. Uh, hopefully live. We might have to do a recorded, but. Um, but Google, if you don't know what cupping is and you can sort of see that procedure, but I start cupping as early as I can. The coffee needs at least 30 days. Ours will have at least 60 before we try to roast and cup, but I'm only going to use two to three ounces to cup and the rest of it. We just keep to drink unless it's horrible. Uh, but the goal is to find out ahead of time what we're looking at. Once all the lots have been selected, then we'll start pulling the uh, two pound samples out and we'll send them to one or two different cuppers. Sometimes normally we use uh, dominion origin. Uh, they're a really good, really reputable company and they're very strict as to far as uh, their cupping scores, but he is really spot on with his flavor profiles. <coughs> I think I swallowed a bug <coughs> and protein, right? Uh, so the goal is to, for me to start pre-cupping and find out sort of where we stand. 
once we get those official cupping scores. Sorry. A lot of those lots can be combined, especially the Limpira lots. A lot of year to year, they're very similar chocolate caramel notes with a nutty finish. You know, things like that. Caramel, uh, you know, with a little bit of chocolate with a fruity finish. That's the Limpira red honey. Uh, and so as long as the cupping scores are within a half a point, then we'll mix those two, you know, or four or five. This year, there was six lots that we were able to mix together because the cupping scores were all so close and the flavor profiles were all so close. So, excuse me, I've been working all day and I haven't had much coffee. So once that coffee is, uh, is selected, every time they finish a lot, uh, so lot this year we had a lot M2N. So that coffee gets weighed up, entered into the book. So this, the day that we get the last lot cup, or not cupped, uh, selected, then the guys will start bagging that coffee up according to how we've defined that it's going to be mixed or not mixed. They'll start bagging it, and then I can start my paperwork for the, uh, the government of Honduras. So I can't change that paperwork once it's been started. So it's super important I know exactly how many bags of coffee. Because a couple years ago, or two years ago, they got the bag count wrong. And so we ended up with one more bag that was on the paperwork. So we just had to leave it behind. You know, it didn't, didn't get to go to the States. So uh, I was able to set, uh, send that bag with this year's crop. But because it's a year old, I just I used it for flavoring. So that's pumpkin spice. Uh, when you, uh, I don't think you could taste the difference. I couldn't taste the difference. The whole reason we age the coffee in parchment uh, the 60 to 90 days is because that extends the quality of the shelf life of the coffee over a period of a year or two or three. So I don't think we lost more than a half a point on the quality of the coffee. And so then, to, but if you're going to use something, use your oldest coffee to, uh, and your lowest cupping scores, use those to, uh, to use, do with the flavored coffee. Definitely not going to put one of our Perry and Amos in and make it Jamaica me crazy or caramel rum crunch. Uh, and of course, I'm not trying to run down those coffees because that's those are coffees that we sell a lot of, especially pumpkin spice, man. Uh, I don't see how anybody stays in business if they don't sell pumpkin spice. But the uh, the coffee at that point is ready to go. It is bur it's in a burlap sack inside of what's called a grain pro bag. So those coffees are sitting in the bodega waiting on us to get a container assigned to us. Those containers come to the Port of Cortez loaded with other materials. It could be shoes. It could be anything. As soon as it goes to its destination, gets unloaded, uh, they sweep it out and they send it straight to us that day. So I usually get anywhere from eight to 24 hours notice. We know it's coming, but they'll, they'll, uh, one year we got a notice and they're like, it's here. You know, you got an hour to get here. And so we start, we called our buddy Herbert. He sent a giant truck. And we loaded everything into it and drove the 30 minutes to Maracala. And uh, I think there was a bug in that too. <laughs> but it's still coffee. So even so, we, uh, we were able to uh, get it there in time and get it on that process. At that point, as soon as that door shuts, I'm given a seal 
with a serial number. It's basically a lock with no key. It's got a serial number, and I put it on there. He taps it with a hammer a few times to make sure it's not going to come open. I take a picture generally of him standing in front of that lock where I can visibly see that number. And then he hands me his camera and I take a picture with his camera, the same thing. He sends that in to his people. I send it to my people. And I've already got my truck loaded down with food and clothes. A lot of people don't want to hear this, but uh, every magazine I own in two pistols. And so we, we escort the container to port because that's, that's your most dangerous time of year. Uh, they almost always kill the driver and they'll wait till he gets on a hill or a slow, hard curve and they will kill the driver, jump up on the side of his truck and hit his air brake, throw him out of the truck and steal his truck loaded full of coffee. And, uh, it happened so fast. Uh, my buddy Herbert that helped us out with the truck. That's what happened to his dad. I killed him right in front of his mom. His mom was riding in the truck. So that is a, definitely a different side of the cup that we don't, we don't like to think about. But it is a, a sad reality in the coffee world. So generally, they, have, they call them caravans. So as soon as we get to a certain spot, there's always a couple of unmarked uh, private security companies that ride along. But I have my doubts how well they're going to fend my, my coffee. And so uh, when I can, I ride along with them. I've done that a couple of times. And it's always exciting. You go to port and they open these two ginormous doors and your truck pulls through. At that point, <clears throat> once the trucker's in, he comes out, gives me a paper, I sign it, keep a copy. And then I head to the hotel. It's called Playa Azul. It's the Blue Beach. And so I go there and spend the night. Uh, they have a hotel and a restaurant. I'll eat me some supper. It's overlooking the ocean. I'll walk across the street find the seashell and then go in and go to bed. I get my continental breakfast that next morning, plantains, crema, eggs, uh, mashed beans uh, with crema on those two, toast, orange juice, a cup of coffee. And uh, once I get stuffed, I, uh, I hit the road as hard as I can. It's about a seven hour drive back. That's one really, really sketchy bridge that was installed about 20 something years ago by our military after a hurricane or something washed out their bridge. And they're still using that emergency military bridge. And uh, so in order to save some time, we use that bridge. I'm sure there's another one, but I haven't found it. Other people say there's another one, but I haven't found it. So we go across that. You have to wait till all your traffic goes one way and then they'll flash the lights and then you can go the other way. And uh, it's just a, a neat little system of being nice to each other and cause two cars can't meet and pass. So, uh, we, we come back to the farm <clears throat> at that point, we head back to the States. Uh, <clears throat> the farmers here, uh, or our workers here do, uh, they'll be cleaning up stuff for a couple weeks, washing thousands of bags that are just covered in coffee juice, scrubbing the patios down cause they're covered in coffee juice. And then they start a regimen of uh, taking off a week or two and just doing nothing. So a lot of them will get a, take a week's paid vacation uh, right after that. And then they'll take the other week's paid vacation right before harvest. And, uh, and then they go work in their farms. You know, we have to rotate out and let them pick their own coffee. So that's, uh, that's part of us, you know, having other farmers too. This year, Pedro, uh, Santiago, Melvin, 
Santos, Anna, and Bahidio all sent their coffee with our coffee this year. <clears throat> and uh, most of them have done that for a couple of years. San Diego, San Diego, Pedro and them, that's their first year, Melvin's first year. Uh, but Anna, Santos, and Bahidio have been doing it for a couple of years. So, uh, and we've got customers that, that enjoy their coffee and they get it. Uh, Jose, <clears throat> a lot of you guys on the comments know Jose. Third Day Coffee Skin, he's on quite a bit. And then Bill that's on here, I'm not sure if you guys can see or not. He's got Billy's Bean Barn. He's going to have a Facebook page uh, with that on it pretty soon. He's roasting and selling beans now. So if you want to try, and they, he's got some different countries than I do. So if you want to try something different, uh, you uh, you can get in touch with Jose. Jose sells Santos's coffee, so it's the only place in the world you can get that. Bill at Billy's Bean Barn, he bought all of Melvin's and all of San Diego's coffee. So it's the only place in the world you can get coffee from those two guys. And those two guys' coffee cupped better than 75% of my coffee this year. So uh, Bill, Bill's got some really good coffee. And he paid a good price for it. Those guys got a good price for their coffee. And it drastically changes their lives when you buy coffee that, <clears throat> that came straight from the guy. And I'm talking about a guy who can afford a bicycle. You know, we're not talking about one of the things I always say is poor people don't export coffee. I don't care what they say. Poor people don't export coffee. It's a fact of life. In order to export coffee, you, you have to think about all the equipment that I've just described to you that we use to depulp it, to uh, dehaul it, uh, the trucks that are involved in moving the coffee around, the amount of concrete it takes to build those pat patios the hundreds of dollars worth of plastic we go through every year on the fields we rent where we dry the coffee on plastic. <clears throat> uh, the hundreds and thousands of dollars worth of equipment that break, get destroyed, get stolen every year. Uh, <clears throat> poor people don't export coffee. Small farmers may sometimes get into a co-op, but it's, it's not the, the normal. Uh, so when we have the opportunity to help somebody like that, we, we jump on it and help those guys. So that coffee is at the port. We're headed back here. We're shutting things down, cleaning equipment. And then I head back to the States and I wait uh, six to seven weeks um, for that coffee, to the paperwork to get finished, for it to get loaded on a barge. If it gets loaded on the barge within a few days, within 10 days, it's at my house. Uh, so this year it got held up in Comiagua because I didn't have a full container. Uh, the, the exporter is also a farmer. And he also owns a mill. And so he bought up some coffee and sent it to his place in North Carolina. So as soon as he got a load ready, put it in with mine, coffee was there pretty quick. It came within three hours of when he said it was going to come. And that was the worst time frame we'd ever have. Normally he says it's going to be there at eight. It's there at seven thirty. That's what's happened most years that we've worked with this guy. I think this is our third year to work with him. This year, the container was a couple hours late. There was a little bit of confusion, stuff like that. Uh, David was on and said he had to step off. He's, he's actually supposed to be at work. Uh, I think Bill's at home now. I'm not sure if he's on or not. And I can see people watching, but I can't see who is on there. So if you're watching, you can always do a shout out. If you're a roaster, shout out with your uh, 
website, stuff like that. And I want to give you a shout out. Uh, or if you want to come on screen, come on screen. Once that coffee gets into my place, uh, most years we've gone to the homeless shelter and they help us unload it. And so once it gets unloaded, there are numerous lots of coffee that have to be organized. I have a 40 foot shipping container and I've built massive wooden shelves, I guess. They're four foot deep. <clears throat> and so we start stacking that coffee. This year, the Mound Ridge football team came out, as well as some people from our Taekwondo class uh, that I take. My, one of my instructors from our niece, which is stick and knife fighting that I take uh, and Eli takes with me. Uh, it is a lady. She's 18 as she also works for us. Uh, she came out, help load coffee. <clears throat> Once we get it organized, we start going through all the pizza bags. It takes about three days and then we start posting online and then you guys start ordering the coffee. And from that point on, I make a few trips back and forth to Honduras. I try to be here during some of the fertilizings and some of the day-to-day -day stuff. And just, you know, if there's a project on the nonprofit or if there's a project at home or on the farm, I try to be here for as much of those as we can. One of the little properties we rent to, uh, to dry our coffee on, they don't want money. They're so far out. They want us to haul stuff for them. So we'll bring out materials to build uh, like a, a washing station. It's a group of, uh, they were uh, <clears throat> Indio, I think is how they call themselves, Indio Indians. That, and they said they've been there for over 2,000 years on that land. And so they let us use that land. But there's probably about 15 little houses. Some of them are made of mud. Some of them are mostly plastic. But they live there in various times of the year, drying corn and beans that they grow out there. You can't grow coffee there. So they let us use that land and dry our coffee on. And they also dry their stuff. So it, it works out pretty good. So that lady wanted a washing station one year. So we built it. The other lady wanted the same thing last year. Uh, this year, they're going to do a building project. So they're wanting us to haul blocks and concrete. And um, so that's what we'll do and help her build a little road coming in through the gate and so we'll just bring her building materials and uh, she doesn't own a truck, but she owns a, a little coffee farm. So her and her sons run the place and that works out, works out well for everybody. <clears throat> so those are things I do during the year, but also I make my living, not from coffee farming, but from coffee roasting. So the farm doesn't make enough profit to, to sustain itself. And so we, we sell roasted coffee and then, uh, that's pretty much how it gets to your cup. I either roast it, grind it, bag it and ship it to you, or I roast it and bag it, send it whole bean. And at that point you grind it and brew it. Or if you're one of our home roasters, then you, um, you roast it yourself and you basically do that same process for yourself, friends, family, farmers markets, or however you do it. So that is the process from the cup to the bean or from the bean to the cup. And, uh, it's, uh, it's as difficult as that. The, the most, the biggest obstacle we have is finding workers. They are, uh, they're sort of loyal to whoever they owe money to a lot of years. Uh, they're loyal to whoever their families work for, for generations, a lot of times. 
So we've been here nine years on this farm. We've been coffee farming for 13. And so we built up some loyalty with some of those families, but it's uh, they will go to wherever the, the most ripe crop is at the time. So our first picking and our last two pickings, it's really difficult to get anybody to come in and pick. We really have to up the price to the point where it's not worth picking a lot of times. <clears throat> so we'll pick the coffee and we'll take it straight to the mill and sell it because we're upside down in the coffee. Uh, we're picking so little, so slow. It's not cost effective for us to be picking coffee with 18 or 25 people and trying to process that much because every day you have to clean the machines down and you're pressure washing them and you're sanitizing them at the end of each day. And it takes an hour or so <clears throat> just to clean the machines up, clean the chutes, clean the tanks. Um, it's not worth doing. So we'll just take that coffee cherry, weigh it, throw it in the truck and haul it to the haul it to the market and sell it as coffee cherry. So <clears throat> those are hard times. You know, I, I would really love to have that coffee in the States. Uh, with the exception of our Bourbon Perinema Marciessa, those coffees will go ahead and uh and figure out how to how to get those processed because they're a pretty small crop. Uh, there's there's such you know the last two years they've been such good cupping quality that we can't not send them to the states. <clears throat> but at that point, that's it. That's cup uh, of coffee that's in your house right now, and that's how it got there. Or that's the green coffee that you're going to roast this week, uh, and that's how it gets to you. If you guys have any questions about it, please. Uh, jump out to us. Uh, <clears throat> for those guys that are still on watching, I, uh, I appreciate you being here. I'm going to cut it short. Just remember, anybody that knows a roaster or home roaster or anybody that's near the Chicago area, we're going to be in this Saturday, not tomorrow, the 14th and the 15th. We're going to be in Warrenville, Illinois, at a, uh, a convention called Coffee Con. A guy named Kevin Sennett. Uh, wrote a couple of coffee books and he puts on this coffee expo. There'll be thousands of people that come through. We're going to be giving out a thousand free samples of our coffee. We're going to be brewing the coffee, giving out uh, coffee samples to drink. There's going to be people from Aerial Press, Chemex, Hario. There's going to be people there that sell uh, brew methods like uh, Mocha Master and uh, I forget who all else is there. It's going to be quite an event and they have pony rides for the kids. So I told Eli that he and I, at some point, are going to, if they'll let me on a pony, I'm going to ride a pony with them. So I'm going to pack my, uh, my hunter and cowboy hat to take down there with me. Uh, I'm trying to get my wife to go. She's got a few other obligations I'm trying to get Billy to go from Billy's bean barn. He's over in Mobley, Missouri. I think it's a five hour drive for him, but we would love to have you guys come up. We're going to have some good time where we can sit and talk. Uh, we're going to bring out, I think we're going to bring about 50 of our new coffee mugs. We'll give those out. I, I ordered a couple of dozen Honduran flags tonight. So we're going to give out little Honduran flags. Uh, Honduran brew methods, we'll be giving those out. Uh, it's all, you know, as always, I'll give autographs. I'll pay you a dollar to ask for my autograph. And so, uh, but we're hoping to have Kevin send it on for a podcast. So I'd love to do a podcast similar to this, have some of you guys ask him. The book that I've got here that I'm reading now is a book he wrote 
about brewing coffee, how to select the best grinder, the best beans, and how to brew a coffee uh, with the Chemex. And he took it through some of the, you know, AeroPress, <clears throat> espresso shots, some things like that. I think it's going to be a great thing. It is going to be, I feel like it's going to be a great thing for our, our company and our people here on the farm. So uh, please stay tuned for those. Uh, it's the 14th and the 15th of October. We'll be doing a live podcast every night to wrap up the night. We're hopefully going to do a, a you know two or three little short podcasts. So let me know what your schedules are. I'll try to get you on a podcast. I'll let you know what my schedule is. I think I'm scheduled to talk on that Saturday and Sunday. I think Bill told me at 11 o'clock. Bill's been my unofficial secretary, letting me know what to do and when to do it. And so, uh, and uh, everything seems to be going fairly smooth. I forgot to order bags, so I'm ordering 1,000 bags tonight for those samples I'm supposed to give out. And I had to order labels tonight, too. So uh, we're hoping to be there, and it's going to be a great time. Um, if you guys have any questions, shoot them out to me. We live streamed on some of our uh, formats, the YouTube, uh, Lex Farms Coffee, and Ashley Williams at, on Facebook. So if you guys want to watch some, tune back in later. Uh-oh, here, come, here comes the rain. We'll see you guys again. I'll do another podcast on Wednesday night, 9 o'clock Central. I'll be posting that on all of our uh, all of our marketing platforms. Thanks, guys. Have a great night. And we will be back in the state soon. And uh, hope to talk to you guys soon. Thanks for joining.